This episode is brought to you by Alowin's Jewelers. The fine craftsmanship and elegant taste of Alowin's Jewelers necklaces, rings, necklaces, earrings, necklaces, body modifications, and necklaces tell everyone how you truly feel about her. With Holy Valentine's Feast Day coming up, an Alowin's customized adornment is the perfect way to show this wasn't a last-minute impulse. It shows that this night is something you've been anticipating for a long time. When you surprise her by coming up behind her and putting an Alowin's Grand Millennial Diamond Choker around her precious throat, she'll catch her breath and know immediately you went to Alowin's. Thank you, Alowin's Jewelers, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by Pain and Suffering. You probably know Pain and Suffering for their premier brands such as ouchies, wounds, brokenness, stress, and hopelessness. But did you know about their other fine products? Such as strengthened character, deepened wisdom, a maturing perspective, and opportunities for new growth? Pain and Suffering wants you to know about their latest new line in collaboration with Shumpterian philosophy, Creative Destruction, trademark. At Pain and Suffering, they tell me Creative Destruction is an organic process of mutation that revolutionizes a person or social structure from within, destroying the old, creating new. Pain and Suffering wants our listeners to try out Creative Destruction for one month free. Just use promo code RERED, one word, and if you don't like it, try it for another month and see if it grows on you. Pain and Suffering, it's not just a fact of life, it's new life as well. Thank you, Pain and Suffering, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. All right, so we don't have any errata this week. No, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. I, yeah. So either we're either that means we were too confusing, <laughs> or we were brilliant in our yes. accuracy. Well, probably a little bit of both. That was <laughs> method to our madness. Well, let's talk about the comments that we got. Mike Benowitz on the Rereading Wolf Facebook group has an opinion about the Echopraxia and House Azure duality names that we talked about in chapter nine. He's convinced that the echopraxia is a sex mall. An upscale a, sex mall. An upscale, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> located in a larger red light district, which is the Algedonic Corridor. And the house Azure is like a Forever 21 or Walden Books or Dippin' Dots in the echopraxia. <laughs> and he imagines that you know the exopraxia generally is devoted to various cosplay themed brothels like mm-hmm. quote one with togas and young boys a book filled brothel with sexy librarians oh wait sorry that would be the walden books there <laughs> maybe a fascist themed snm dungeons and spaceship themed rooms with faux cacogens oh that's creepy the house azure is one that serves the particular fantasy of coupling with these famous female faux socialites. Yeah. So 
And that makes a lot of sense. And just to point out that that's how he was going to, he was going to illustrate it in his comics adaptation, which Mike still should happen. Let's be honest. Yeah, that's great because whenever I imagine the House Azure up till now, I always imagine just an abandoned road. It's just Rosha. It's just Severian. And everything is snow covered. The House Azure light is the only thing coming out. But, you know, Mike has a really interesting yeah. take where. And it makes sense. It makes sense to me, especially given how everything else is mm-hmm. sort of layered and accretions and uh, history and different right. things. So, yeah, it makes sense for, for this too. Also in the Facebook group, uh, Robert McCarthy said, your discussion of the ruined chapel that might be ruined because nobody is in charge of maintaining it reminded me of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. The church is jointly maintained by three different religions, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Arminian Apostolic, and has fallen into disrepair over the last couple hundred years because nobody can agree who is in charge of what? To a, he linked to a, a very interesting article on their attempt to actually repair the place. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that, you know, somebody can't just get on their own repair it because if they start repairing it, that act in itself is implying a kind of ownership. So it's, it's a real super tragedy of the commons. Yeah. He also says about the smell of burning roses for Thecla, in Catholic theology, roses and the smell of roses are associated with the Virgin Mary. A rose smell is supposed to indicate the presence of Mary, and there are many people who claim to have had this experience. Arguably, the most famous example is Our Lady of Guadalupe, who made rose petals and the smell of roses appear in winter. Well, that kind of fits with Catherine, too. The story deserves further unpacking, but he gives us a famous line in which Mary chastises Juan Diago. Am I not here? I, who am your mother? Hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. He also notes that rose smell might also be related to the odor of sanctity, which is characterized by the death of a saint, uh, supposedly because they're in the state of grace, free from sin Mm. and death in general. Also, during a little research for this post, he found out that the Roman feast Rosalia was a feast to celebrate ancestors and the continuity of life through the family line, festive banqueting. Rosalia and other rose festivals seem to have occurred mostly in May. And how is this for correlation, he says. In the Wikipedia page for the Rosalia Festival, he quotes, In Ovid's Fasti, a poem about the Roman calendar, Flora, as the divine representative of May, speaks of her role in generating flowers from the blood of the dead. Through me, glory springs from their wound. Later, this same article notes that Pope Gregory I described the fragrance and luminosity of the rose as issuing from the blood of martyrs. Anyway, that's that's really good stuff. Yep. Mickey Smith had a great comment about the face of the maid playing Catherine in the ritual, her face being like a pool in a wood, that is, like a mirror. So in this sense, Severian is actually looking at his mother, seeing his own face. And 
that is about the best explanation I've ever thought of. I think it's beautiful. I think that it's also just a great Wolfian way to describe a reflection. And it's such an indirect way that I think it's just wonderful. I love it, actually. <laughs> I mean, I'm not just even convinced. I just really like it, too. You're right. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, Cody Martin connected with us over email, uh, rereadingwolf at gmail.com. He, he mentioned some really interesting points, starting with geography. He notes that if we assume that Nessus is Buenos Aires and the Guile is the Uruguay River, the Uruguay River forms the southern border of the Brazilian state of Santa Catarina. That is St. Catherine. Right. That's just cool. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> he also took time to re reread Eschatology and Genesis and, quote, found that when Nod says he has come to meet Meshia's son, Gabriel says, you have the wrong creation, my friend. You're 50 million years too late. Given how much of the play is shown to have pieces of truth, I feel 50 million years in the future is a fair estimate for when this story takes place. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's nice because it's, it's a concrete number that's thrown out in the middle of something that does often contain all these facts, and I'd totally forgotten about yeah. it. I will admit that Talos' play does not stick in my head as well as I <laughs> wish it did. So every time I reread it, I get a little more, the, but it just, yeah, it's rough. But do we believe that Talos is authoritative on that? Right, that, that it's correct. And, and it could, again, be, you know, yeah, I don't know. I was thinking, you know, 50 million years just sounds like a, a nice big round number. Um, That's a huge number. Though. Was, you know, 50 million years ago, there's no whales. There's no antelopes or horses or cows. Just these little animals run around that kind of resemble capybaras. There's no grass. Yeah. And the only other thing that makes me wonder is just because he says you have the wrong creation. And then it's more a joke about like, I don't know different big bangs or something like that. But then it, then it shouldn't be millions. It should be billions or trillions or whatever. But yeah, I don't know. I still, he's, he's right though, that, I mean, when we are given a specific number like that by Wolf, even if it's, even if it's not that number, it seems like we ought to pay attention to the number sure. because it's, you know, he's, he's just not as <laughs> Wolf is not likely to just give random pieces of specific information. Yeah. I have I, to think about why he would come with that number. It's hard for me to think, 50 million years but but i like it because i think if i'm right it's the only time there that in the book they give any kind of estimate right exactly of, well yeah. you know but everyone lives yeah. outside of time you know you have all these sailors living outside of time so it's mm -hmm. entirely possible yeah. that much of what carries over from epoch to epoch is is just these other people coming back from from the past and rebuilding the cultures that they came from yeah so, but it was actually Cody's last point that made me kind of sit up and pay attention because he he talks about how he doesn't think that Catherine is the corpse that the Baudelaire are digging up. Um, and he says that he thinks it has to be Thecla's. Now, of course, he says that immediately brings up some time problems, but it's, it's in the solution to that that I think is not ingenious, but is something that I should have paid attention to. So it, what he says is just the point that we brought up that in the very first chapter, Severian talks about, I have a perfect memory. And then immediately two things happen that show that 
he misremembers something. The first is the Drodden Roach thing. And then the second is that he gets lost in the path. Like, even if that become, even if that was just a running joke of him getting lost, the fact that it happens right at the beginning, mm-hmm. after he pointed that out, it, and that it's definitely about the way he reads it. I dashed along a path that was, or at least then seemed, completely unfamiliar. Then, as suddenly as if it had been snatched away, the path was no longer beneath my feet. I suppose I must have failed to notice some turning. So to talk about, first of all, running along a path that you thought you remembered, but then all of a sudden seems to be different, and then there's no path at all. Now we're getting into describing a little bit more about the tunnels, which I know I don't necessarily think they're time travel things, but um, it's also exactly how he describes getting to Master Ash's house that it's following a specific path in a certain way that gets you in certain places. And it it just seems again, so conspicuous that Wolf would say, I have a perfect memory and then immediately have him get lost and not recognize something or not, not remember something. um, Exactly. And Cody's idea is that he gets lost that because he, he wanders into the future inadvertently. Now, one big problem with that is that Vodalus would be in the future and they can see Vodalus's shot from before something that happens a few years in the future how could he see it from far away i mean that's that's a question although what's weird too is that severian can see master ash's house yeah up on the cliff but then he has to get there in a particular way so i don't know my you know i'm still we're all still a little fuzzy on exactly how time travel works wolf there's still two things he has to bring he'd have to bring the volunteers along with him that's 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 another big one yeah and he has to get back without realizing it as well. Without realizing it. So those are problems. At the same time, though, what really stood out to me was I was like, why didn't I make the connection with Master Ash and and following a specific path mm-hmm. with the way that he describes it there? So, Cody, thanks for that. Um, yeah, I'm still not sure that it's Thecla. He gives a really good, I mean, of all the sort of arguments for it being Thecla, I think that's one of the the best ones. I think to sort of explain how it gets there right? Um, or how Severian gets to that point. But th- well, I guess another weird issue then would be that Vodalus here sees Severian as a young boy. And then what weeks later sees him as a grown man and Severian tells him he was there and, and Vodalus never brings that up. So that would be, that would be weird. Ah, but I, I, I and, and as I said, I would love to connect Thecla to that figure because there's so many signifiers there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bernard Stockerman's connected to us via email, and he says, I was thinking a little bit about the mention of Thecla's perfume in your recent episode, Chapter 11, The Feast. As we found out in Chapter 9 in the House Azure, it reminds Severian of a rose burning. I don't know whether others have made this connection, but the other place I can remember where we are meant to think of burning roses is in Citadel of the Autark. Chapter 31, The Sand Garden, where Severian has that numinous encounter with the rose bush on the beach and recognizes the claw as the thorn of that bush. And I think it's a very moving passage, but especially the last words of the chapter. I drew off my boots, which refers to Exodus 3, 5, where God commands Moses in front of the burning bush to remove his shoes because the place he's standing is holy ground. You pointed out that Thecla's very name sounds like the claw. Likewise, her perfume seems to me 
to connect her yet more directly to the divine. I don't know whether this also means that when Severian is in the sand garden or the botanic gardens by that lonely bush, hearing the surf pounding at the edge of the world and feeling that a certain woman is there nearby, that that woman is somehow Thecla too. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. Uh, you know, here's what I, about that rose bush is that in, in the Holy Catherine ceremony, she also has a wheel that bursts into roses and has an association with a fireworks display of a call to Catherine's wheel. So yeah, there's a connection to a burning bush and a rose bush. Yeah, that's there. I do. I really like this though. It sort of has, I always, after you said that, I sort of thought of it as, I don't know if this is a thing, but transitive symbols mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> where symbols can sort of, you know, move from these two connections and then a, a third thing can have a connection to the second, which then gets some further getting complicated there. But I positively believe that happens all the time in Wolf. I positively, I'm a believer in that. (laughs) You have discovered my secret religion. (laughs) Well, just to, just to help with that, uh, Severian in that same part in Citadel, he does mention to that. Well, here, here's the line. He says, no one can explain such things. Since I have come to the house absolute, I've talked with the Heptarch and with various Akarias, I got to look that word up, but <laughs> religious person in some way or another, but they've been able to tell me very little, save that the increate has chosen before this to manifest himself in these plants. I mean, that added thing there is sort of just like a reminder of there has been another time when the increate has manifested himself in a bush of roses, which of course was a burning bush. Right here. It's it's roses, you know, or what the Bible has is bush. But yeah, burning bush and then the burning roses, that's that's a good connection. And to find that this final moment in Citadel, I think is really good. Yeah. And uh, Bernard also goes on to note that this event with the burning bush occurs in the Sinai. And it is in the Sinai where St. Catherine's body was flown by angels after her death and where her shrine remains to this day. It's, he, he suggested, well, that might be a spurious connection. And, well, I'm uninclined to call any connections spurious. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always trying to, uh, to latch those down any way I can anyway. But, but I really like that. I do like that. Anything that further connects St. Catherine's story to Holy Catherine's story, I, I like. I also like the further connections between Catherine and Thecla, which I don't understand, but I believe are there. And the one other thing that he mentions is the part about feeling that a certain woman is is nearby, that that woman is Thecla. Um, but that certainly connects well. I mean, I think the other thing that could be happening there is that the woman that are feeling that a woman near is nearby is actually Severian and Thecla, you know, is there Thecla in Severian when he's feeling this into the future because i think that's one thing he's but what about the maid what about his sense that the maid is there hmm i don't i'm not so sure about that can you can you wedge that one in now <laughs> hmm. and that one i might have more trouble with but but it would certainly fit that i mean with with just sort of making those connections through the symbols at that point it, it certainly works quite well yeah i mean we never actually see severian put on perfume but if he did it would surely be burning rose Okay, so I guess we better get started on the chapter. (laughs) 
Chapter 12, The Traitor. So we, when we were introduced to Thecla, we had a chapter called The Traitorous. And now we have a traitor. I guess the traitor, I, we all agree, is going to be Severian, right? I think so. I mean, we've gotten the traitoress and now traitor, so we certainly have those ways of things. It is something to think about. I don't know that this is necessarily the chapter to really think, but one thing that I was thinking about is how many of his chapter titles in actually all of the Sun books, even Earth of the New Sun too, the the sense of the title only sometimes makes sense after the chapter. Um, and you know, that like you can't figure out or you don't even really see that the puzzle is there or that a question is there until you get to the next chapter, which is kind of fun instead of sort of labeling exactly what's going on in this chapter. It's more like saying, keep an eye out for this idea. And it moves on to the next one. You know, I think on this one, it's eventually pretty clear, you know, who the traitor is, but we'll, we'll hold that open in case it's not Severian in case there might be someone he might be referring to someone else. But if it is Severian, this is a very ironic title for mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. for severian to be the traitor are we supposed to read thecla's position as a traitoress equally ironic yeah i think in a lot of ways yeah i mean i don't think that any of these labels are ever super easy and the odd thing is traitor is of course a loaded word but his being a traitor here is being traitor to a torture's guild which is obviously in the long run the right thing to do so <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's where we're going to get a lot of discussion later on about justice and duty and things like that. And yeah. so deciding your allegiances and figuring out what the right thing is, realizing that you can kind of do a full 180 in a lot of ways mm-hmm. is really important. Yeah, and that's that's a big question. I mean, this this chapter is all about decisions. Um, it's all about right, not just Severian, but even Thecla, I think, making some pretty hard decisions along the way. Right. So uh, this this chapter starts the morning after the Feast of Holy St. Catherine. Severian is hungover, mm-hmm. headache, nausea, the duties for apprentices, and most of the journeymen that morning are to clean the Grand Court and the chapel after the celebration. But by tradition, Severian is excused from that because he was elevated the night before. Yep. Just a tiny point. That's that's a very small thing, but it does from the very first sentence bring up at least the question of duty and how much you're supposed to be doing, whether or not you can be excused from your duties mm-hmm. and things like that. It's tiny, tiny point, but it's still totally thematically, you know, on point. I feel like. right. So, yeah. But he still has to work in the oubliette. Mm-hmm. That's nice. It's it's quiet and easy <laughs> on his aching head. But the apprentices arrive clattering down, as Severian puts it, with breakfast plates for the clients, basically cold meats left over from the feast. Uh, Iada has apparently won his captaincy for the apprentices. He has a fat lip and, quote, the gleam of triumph in his eye. Mm -hmm. Which goes back to that question we brought up before about like how brutal that was or whether that was Severian sort of coming up with something at the right second. At this point, it seems just like the tradition. Yeah. Yeah, He's just labeled there. The way he kind of narrated it at the time seemed like, and I realized I had to do something. And this was my heroic moment as a young boy. 
now it just seems like what everybody does. <laughs> yeah. As someone pointed out in the first chapter, when he sees Vodalus's sword, he thinks how nice it would have been when Drota won the captaincy of the apprentices to have had a weapon like that. Yeah. So mm -hmm. not, not when Severian was captain of the apprentices, no, but when he had not. to defend himself against the new captain of the apprentices. <laughs> The clients are surprised at receiving meat, but Severian explains that today is special and is the only day of the year that they'll get it and that there would be no torture either on the day of the feast when everyone is getting ready for it or the day after. If a sentence calls for torture or execution on those days, it is postponed. Thecla is still asleep when he arrives at her cell. He unlocks the door and carries it in without waking her. A few hours later, a young female client is brought to the oubliette by Gurloise, two cataphracts and an anagnost reading prayers. So a cataphract is supposed to just be someone in full armor, right? Right. They, yeah. But very silver armor, apparently. Apparently, yeah. Completely covered because yep. a, cataphract, a cataphract is a heavily armored horseman, basically, is the literal term. Gotcha. In his chapter on the words, yeah, he just wear armor on all parts of their bodies. Yeah. I think the idea here is that they're faceless, completely compo composed mm. in silvery armor. An anagnost is a cleric in the Eastern Orthodox Church whose job it is to read texts out loud from the Bible. The picture here is her being taken to the oubliette as a priest reads something from the Book of the New Sun, the, the Earth version, behind them during the event. They hand the woman over to Severian. The paperwork is all ready been completed he says i nodded and grasped the woman by the arm the cataphracts released her and turned away like silver automata robots mm -hmm. she's in an outfit of sateen torn and dirty which identifies her as an optimate sateen is a cotton that's woven to look like satin glossy looking in medieval times, certain types of clothing were limited by law to particular levels of class. But in this case, it's a matter of deduction. It's too nice for a commoner and not refined enough for an armager. The uh, anagnost starts to go with the prisoner, but Gurlowy stops him. The prisoner chats Severian up. Do you want to know what I did? No. Will I be tortured and executed? Yes. How do you know? Everyone is. Isn't anyone ever released? sometimes. Then I might be released. Severian says the hope in her voice now made me think of a flower growing in shadow. <laughs> mm. I like that. For, uh, that's yeah. one of my favorite ones. I got it. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Which is to say that it blossoms in hope of life that will surely never come. Severian says it's possible, but very unlikely. The cell next to Thecla is empty. Severian debates whether to put her there to keep Thecla company, but but the noise of putting her there might wake her, but he decides to do it. The woman says her crime was paying men to set her fiancé's mistress's house on fire. Is that the reason for me to be tortured? I don't know, Severian replies. Her name is Marcelina. What's your name? Severian, he figures Thecla will tell her anyway. And you get your bread by breaking bones? It must give you a good dreams by night. All this brings up an interesting point, I think. Is it typical for a client to be tortured and then released? Severian often implies that no one ever leaves when they come to the tower. But mm -hmm. although torture is extreme in this case, execution 
does seem a little over the top. Yeah. And I don't know if it's execution or if it's just that once they get in there, they're kind of forgotten. Mm. I mean, it makes me think of the antechamber later at the House Azure. How many people are just sort of forgotten in places yeah, in this yeah. world? But I don't know, because we also hear all the time that the cells are, are fewer than we had or we had more than normal. So, I mean, if they were really just sort of keeping people there to languish forever, it seemed like they would have more. Right. So I wonder if this that most of the torture that happens is pretty extreme stuff. I mean, like we know that Thecla's torture is basically going to lead to her death eventually. Right. So possibly all of the forms of torture. But that's the plan. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if there is sort of casual torture or if, or if, if once you get tortured, it's basically an execution sentence right? as well. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's never perfectly clear. Um, On the other hand, you know, she might be lying about the seriousness of her crime. Yeah. yeah. So how do you take Severian sort of curt responses to all of this in this chapter? Yeah, I was just, I mean, he is hungover. <laughs> so there's, there's kind of that. <laughs> But his way of responding to her is so different from the way that he responds to Thecla. And part of me wonders, because there's such an emphasis on her clothing and it being not, you know, a high class clothing, are we supposed to take from here the idea that Severian is still kind of infatuated with class and that one reason why he's still so crushing on Thecla is because she's an exultant and that here we have a woman who's not quite so high and he sort of immediately writes her off. I don't know. I mean, it's, um, that was just what I wondered because they emphasize her clothing so much mm. and, and talk about that or, or he does at the beginning. And then his, just his demeanor is so different. Well, it, we just don't have enough examples to mm -hmm. know. He sees that like he has to go into the room. He was just going to drop off the, the books and slide it into the slot, but then she convinces them to go in and he just falls for the minute he claps mm -hmm. eyes on her. Yeah. To what extent that is explainable. Yeah. I'm not sure either. And then one other thing, and this is sort of jumping ahead just a little bit, but he seems tired of these kinds of questions. Like that's kind of how <laughs> I took the curtness. Like he's like, oh, I have to have this conversation with every person who comes in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what's kind of cool is that Thecla then kind of falls into the same trap at the end of this conversation. She's like, I'm about to be released. He's mm -hmm. been giving letters to me. And I wonder if that's another part of his maybe frustration here that his curtness is kind of hiding this thing that now he's just been raised to a new level in his profession. He's having to go see the woman who he actually does love, but he's also recognizing that she's in the awful position of just this regular common person who's just come in. And he's caught, he's conflicted. And so I feel like, you know, all those different things are going on in this little scene. But yeah, it's, when I read it, it was just so obvious how, you know, he's giving one word answers. There is right. occasionally no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, just so curt compared to other things. Um, and normally he's not rude, like, right. but this part, he almost seemed just kind of rude to this woman. It's not like he's brought in a lot of clients at this point. He's just become a journeyman. True kind of an annoying person Could and it, we don't know to the extent that the account we're getting from Severian is subjective or objective true Thecla looks through the slot and asks Severian who is with him a new prisoner a woman from the house absolute no there he is giving her <laughs> one word answers just like she does he does with Marcelina mm -hmm. he has Marcelina stand where Thecla can see her Thecla is just 
talking to talk now. Another woman? Isn't that unusual? How many do you have? Eight on this level right now. I would think you would often have more than that. <laughs> so, yeah, so she's, you know, going the other way just to keep the conversation going. We rarely have more than four. Marcelina asks, how long will I have to stay? Not long. If you stay here long, Declas says, quote, with an unhealthy seriousness, I'm about to be released. He knows. Marcelina says, really? Severian knows. He's mailed letters for me, haven't you, Severian? And he's been saying goodbye for these last few days. He's really a rather sweet boy in his way. Now we're going to find out that he kind of has a sense that the end is coming for Thecla, right? Yeah. And that maybe that has to do with the, the way that yeah, yeah, acting today and, mm-hmm. and, and with Thecla. He has known that it's that time of year, right? I, apparently, after the Feast of St. Catherine, after the most of the winter has gone and they're going to have to you know watch the food, they start cleaning house. And to the fact that he's just been raised journeyman means that now he may actually feel for the first time, oh, all of this stuff I'm really responsible for now. And so before it could have just seemed like, oh, the torture that someone else may have to do with Thecla and it's all still very theoretical. Maybe he woke up this morning and it hit him. Oh, I might have to be the one who does it. Right, and yeah. All, and which of course it turns out, yeah, <laughs> he will. Yeah. But that could all be working in there as well. Right. So it, it's not clear what she means by Severian has been saying goodbye. And it might be true for reasons that she's misinterpreted. So, And that sweet boy in his way is is very telling uh, for Severian. It kind of it, it hits home in a way we're going to find out a lot, lot deeper than he lets on initially. So he puts Marcelina in her cell and says that they can talk. After he finishes feeding his clients, his shift is over. He runs into Drota, who suggests that he go back to bed. He can tell he's still hungover. From this conversation, we realize that Severian has been wearing his mask all this time because Mm -hmm. he's a journeyman now, and they almost always wear it. They recognize each other from their eyes, and all their emotional signals, angry or jovial, are conveyed by their eyes. The fact that he's wearing the mask and that Wolf calls attention to that here, and the more I think about why that scene, that first scene might have been so awkward, I feel like maybe Severian's finally realizing how many masks are getting worn between him and Thecla and how difficult it is to really be open with her because I think he truly does in his way um, love her. I, you know, it may be sort of puppy love and his you know first crush like that, but nonetheless, for for him and who he is, that's it's perfectly authentic but at the same time i think he knows not just from that line that he will come back to but he's probably realizing too how much of a distance there is between him and thecla Mm -hmm. and especially now that i think he's probably realizing oh yeah and i have a job to do and she has a role to play in this situation that all of that is you know making it feel like there are layers between him kind of like the mask is between other people now there there are all these things that make it almost impossible for them to have any kind of real honest relationship instead of going to bed he goes to girloise study yeah girloise isn't there He checks the papers on his table and finds exactly what he expected to find. He says he doesn't know exactly why. It was the order for Thecla's execution. I'm sorry, excruciation. That was that word. Now, the way you said that now, (laughs) but but, by saying execution um, right there, because Wolf always uses that word excruciation, but we were talking about people staying. Excruciating obviously means being very painful, but is that word possibly also... Like a mix of torture and execution. 
it, it seems to always imply that it is torture unto death. In every instance, I've seen him use it. So I think it means execution, mm-hmm. but I don't actually hear them saying, you know, this is your order for your torture. It's always excruciation. So maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe to be tortured is to be executed as well. Just made me think. In this case, excruciation clearly does mean life-ending torture. Well, now he can't sleep. So he goes to the necropolis, to his mausoleum. He doesn't know it, but it's the last time he's going to go there. He hasn't been there for a while. The funeral bronze is tarnished because he hasn't been there to polish it. He imagines bringing Thecla here, hiding her there as he brings her food every day. I suppose the way it would have been with Triskley if he had kept him. After a while, he'd pay a merchant in a dhow to ferry her down the guile out of the country. A dhow is a small boat with a triangular sail and one or two masts. It's, it's kind of an Indian sailing vessel. Now he starts to assess his ambivalent thoughts and motivations. He thinks that if he were a hero, like one in the stories that he and Thecla read together, he would have helped her escape that night. Severian is in the Brown Book. Mm -hmm. He would have overpowered or drugged the journeyman guarding the oubliette, but he had no drugs. And the only weapon that he had would be a knife from the kitchen. In his heart, he knows that counterpointed against his feelings for Thecla and all that would be required to help her escape was that she had called him a rather sweet boy. More than that, a rather sweet boy in his way. Even sweet boy gets qualified. He knew that was all he would ever be to her. That's the way he felt at that moment. But an older, not even a much older, but a much more worldly Severian is second guessing this feeling. He says, at the time, I thought it mattered. Yeah, that last line changes a whole lot of stuff, I feel like, from that passage. Mm-hmm. I also think just to back up to the other part there where he's talking about a hero in the old romances, of course he is a hero in a adventure story right here. And I, you know, we've mentioned it already many times, but the fact that in Will's stories, they turn out to be true, just not in ways that they understand the same thing is going to happen. He is the hero here who in a way will save her in a way that turns into the happy ending of the story of a sort. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not pure, but he does prevent her from suffering even more than she could have. She does end up getting saved in a way inside of him. And that also, of course, does set him on the path to, you know, become a different kind of person. So it's kind of fun because he's like, if I was a hero, I would have done all these things. Well, of course, he also is a hero, just not in any of the ways that he expected. And this is very much the type of story that he and Thecla had read in those books. He doesn't recognize it because he's in the story. Yeah. But so to that line about rather a sweet boy. So yeah, the big thing there is that when she said that, it kind of pulled the rug out from under him and made him feel like, oh, she doesn't really take me seriously. Even sort of on the same day that he was supposedly basically becoming a man, at least in the eyes of his guild, 
and she undercuts him. So he said that that was one reason why he was pulled back from wanting to do the superheroic thing. But then that line, that last line, at the time, I thought it mattered. How do you take that one? I think I know how I take it, but but how do you? I think he thinks that if older Severian were in that situation, he would have gone ahead and done it. I think it's underappreciated what romantic the older Severian the Severian writing this story, the Severian that includes Thecla and the Autark and all the previous Autarks, what a romantic he has become. Even if he did it, success would probably mean not only betraying the honor of his family, the only family he's ever known or considered, but actually murdering some of them. Yeah. Maybe Drott or Rosha. And the odds are that he would not complete the task undetected. They would know it was an inside job and who would be a more likely suspect than him. So Thecla would starve in that mausoleum and be caught when she finally left it to find food or leave. She's an exultant. She's not going to be able to move about in disguise. But let's say the impossible happens. He gets her out without any surviving journeyman or client seeing them. Without raising an alarm, he hides her in the mausoleum and dodges the suspicion around her. He manages to cobble enough money together to buy passage on a merchant ship. While he's getting more money, I have to question whether he gets a regular salary. He hires a merchant ship that for some reason does not immediately turn her in for a reward. Now, what happens when she gets down the guile all the way to the sea? Where will she go? She's not the sort of person who could remake herself and care for herself in a remote cabin. It would be more merciful to allow her to be executed than to abandon her in the jungles of the guile Delta. But, but, Despite all that, he's conflicted. And what ultimately tips the scale is that it would be a futile gesture for the sake of a love that was completely unrequited. What he felt for Thecla, she did not feel for him, could not feel for him. He'd be betraying and murdering his family, who self-evidently do love or at least respect him, for someone who doesn't, for someone who who, if she stayed with him, it would only be because she had no choice. She would go from being a prisoner to, of the state to a prisoner of Severian. And yet, despite all that, the older, more worldly Severian thinks, maybe doing it for his own personal feelings, regardless of hers, was enough. So he doesn't break her up. I actually wonder if there's a slightly different way to take because I, I totally get all that. And I think that they actually, they talk about, yeah, I mean, Thecla even mentions at some point, yeah, you would have had to kill some of your friends or something like that mm -hmm. later on in the chapter. So yeah, all of that is certainly there. One reason why I like this, that one sentence is because it's, it, he doesn't elaborate on it. He doesn't tell you exactly what he's thinking. And I actually feel like it's a little more like the older Severian saying, 
after having gone through all this stuff, yeah, even with all those rationalizations and even with the fact that I was focused on having my own feelings hurt, when he says at the time I thought it mattered, like what's the it? And I feel like maybe what thing he could be saying there is at the time I thought that my own feelings about this mattered. Whereas at the time, you know, what I didn't realize was the full perspective that this was wrong, that her being tortured was wrong. And that what I should have done is maybe taken a totally principled stance and actually tried to break her up. I loved her. I should have done what was right at the time. I know that now, even though it's totally impractical, but I didn't have the courage or even really the, the awareness to do it then. It's possible that it's that there. I don't know that that's actually there. And I feel like that kind of approach, that super uber principled Severian now looking back on this and having regrets, we don't always see that too much, but I still think that maybe that one line is kind of him looking back and, and just still having a moment of regret and saying, oh, I was wrong to be so selfish in my own feelings and to be so petty. Um, because what I should have done was realized I loved her and I would do whatever I had to do. And oddly enough, in the rest of the book, you know, Severian, whenever he does make, eventually tries to make commitments to people, he does try. He fails many times, but but at least he's much more aware of trying to be committed to helping Dorcas or to staying with his friends. He's much more romantic. Mm -hmm. He He's much more of a person to say, you know, love conquers all. Love is more important than all, rather than worrying about the practicality, worrying about the harm done to others, worrying about whether it would even work. The point is that he loved her. Yeah. So maybe that was more important. And he doesn't emphatically say that was more important, but he doesn't consider it the, the weight against it to be as great yeah. anymore. Yeah. And we know that he's going to feel guilty about this forever. You know, he's, he's going to remember the, the blood under the door and it's going to haunt him forever. Yeah. There's a few things worth mentioning at this time. This is Severian remembering his state of mind without Thecla in it. So one, he has a rather biased advocate at this time when he's looking back on it in his own mind. That cannot be excluded. Thecla is there. She has a very strong opinion mm -hmm. about it. A second, you know, Thecla might simply be a more romantic person. And third, when Severian starts talking about Valeria later and throughout the Claw and then in Citadel, his perspective about her changes remarkably. Mm -hmm. Later in this, in Shadow, he refers to her as the forgotten girl. By the end of Citadel, she's the most beautiful woman he's ever known. Mm -hmm. So he's actually not in just his memory of his state of mind in the past, but actively in the writing of this memoir, Severian's perspective does change. It's as if the person who started putting pen to paper in this book is not the person who wrote the middle portion and finished it. In a way, I feel the same way when I return to episodes that we record weeks later after considering... <laughs> <laughs> later chapters and listener input. Severian is just a different kind of narrator. Now, as a listener pointed out in a previous episode, the moment Severian is joined to Thecla, he realizes that he did mean more to her than he could have realized. 
And I don't want to discount that information. It's it's meaningful. It it has to go into the pot when you consider this event with Severian. But I still think it has to be married to Thecla's actual description of Severian when she thought she was about to leave this remote backwater and return to her life at the House Absolute or at a villa on Lake Deaterna. This description of him as a sweet boy in his way, regardless of what's transpired between them before, that is just massive friend zoning. <laughs> yeah. No. Now, I don't think we can fail to consider his admission to Dorcas later in Sword of the Lictor that it wasn't quite as impossible for him to have helped Thecla escape from the tower, as he implies later. He says, I thought of Thecla and how I had wanted to free her. I couldn't find a way to do it. Have I ever told you? There were brothers everywhere, five to pass by the shortest route, and all of them knew me and knew of her. Thecla was shrieking now in some corner of my mind. All I really would have had to do would have been to tell them Master Gerloise had ordered me to bring her to him. But I would have had to go with her then, and I was still trying to figure out some way by which I could stay in the guild. I did not love her enough. I mean, that is relevatory in its way. But again, you know, this plan would require that he be on the run with her. Mm -hmm. So the idea of hiding her in the mausoleum while he brought her food until he arranged transport out of Nessus, that would not be on the table. They would be a penniless exultant and a teenage torturer, a pair that could not be more distinguishable. Now, maybe the guild would attempt to save face by, you know, simply not looking for them. Would Gerloise agree to falsify reports that Thecla had been executed in order to hush the matter up? That's not the character of Gerloise that we've been presented with. Palamon might have been able to convince him to do it. But Severian certainly couldn't have known that that was on the table the day before Thecla's sentence. Now, the rest of this chapter, like I said, in my opinion, some of the cleanest, most delicate, best-written prose of Wolf's career. It's mundanely horrifying and sad, and yet it is unrelenting. Two days after the Feast of Holy St. Catherine, Gerloise has Severian and Rosha assist in the excruciation. I assume he thought this was a necessary lesson in his becoming a journeyman torturer. Note that Palamon and Gerloise seem to fully expect Severian to remain a torturer. If Severian had been placed with the guild by the Autark and Father Aniri to ultimately become Autark in the New Sun, the masters are not aware of it. Yeah. This is also just the fact that they make him come with her. I mean, they're they're the ones who said first, hey, really get to know this person. Mm -hmm. And they're like, hey, we know that probably going to be tempted to have sex with her, which means you're going to get caught up in a relationship. I mean, they know totally <laughs> what what position they're putting him in here. I mean, it is kind of yeah. like a, you know, kind of like the test when they ask him, like, do you know our sigil? They, when it goes back to that point, this is still, it still feels a little bit more like further initiation. 
it seems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think it definitely so. Severian unlocks her cell. Everyone is there. She initially assumes she might have a visitor or will be released. When they get to the examination room, she knows what's up. At that point, Severian says, many men faint, but she did not. There was a, just a slight tremor in her voice. He admires her courage. The examination room is a big open plan. Tables and devices everywhere. As a diversion, Gerlouise treats this walk as if she's a tourist at the tower and he's her guide. He won't explain the tools of her own torture, but he'll explain the ones they pass as they walk through the examination room. He says, some are quite old and most are hardly ever used. There are tubes coming down like columns that go to ancient engines and it's, quote, cluttered with the tools of our mystery. I still remember the first time I read this, I felt like, oh, that's a smart thing. Help keep them distracted. <laughs> Ever since then, it's like, that is just, that's just harsh. <laughs> it's like you're just surrounded by pain. <laughs> and, you know, everything that you hear about is just going to make you think, oh, mine's probably going to be worse. Yeah. You know, it just seems tone deaf and cruel and like the torture's already started. Actually, when I thought of them having Severian participate in her torture, I thought about a farm boy, you know, his father. Oh, I know where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> he has him raise a cow and then, okay, now it's your turn to butcher, yeah. butcher him because that's your job. <laughs> and so he, this is what he has to do. And when you're, you're leading the cow off to the slaughter room, the idea is that, you know, it's not going to, the cow won't know that it's happening until the very last minute. So, you know, he's, the cow will be happy the whole time until he gets to that moment and then bang. <laughs> that's gruesome <laughs> <laughs> her, and you're right um, as he's telling her about the different uh, items of torture around her her first thought is her own she asks if the one to be used on her is also very old and angrily says the most hallowed at all it's, it's hard to say whether Gerlois means this or if he's only continuing to distract her by acting as if what will happen to her will be truly special and have particular meaning. There's an awkward silence, and then he resumes. The kite, I'm sure you must be familiar with. Everyone knows of it. I suppose that the kite is a cross. I was going to say, yeah, the kite, should it should be a crucifix is what I would have thought. Right. He shows her the apparatus, a vague name, if there ever was one. Mm -hmm. It tattoos any slogan you choose in the flesh. He says, it's supposed to. That's what he says, to tattoo whatever you slogan you have in the flesh. It might be that he's never personally used it. Yeah. He says it's seldom in working order. So that one is... I think pretty clearly a call out to Kafka. Other people have noticed that. In fact, I think Michael Andreducey even mentions it in his new book, which if you haven't gone and got, got yeah. you should go get that. But yeah, that that's totally Kafka's story in the penal colony, that there's a, a torture device that tattoos things onto the prisoner and things are going wrong with the machine while they're trying to, to get it to work. And it just totally feels like that. And Kafka, it's more of this sort of weird horror of being in the midst of torture, but not knowing if things are going to work right. And even your torturers are sort of incompetent <laughs> and a mess. Um, so to bring that up here, just as a small illusion, I feel like is 
a little bit of a nod to say it's all being presented so much as if this is just part of this world and yeah, Severian's been grown up in it. But I feel like it's still kind of like a nod from Wolf to be like, all right, you, you know he's you're not supposed to like this, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, we're all good sci-fi genre fans. We're having fun <laughs> with all this. But at the same time, I feel like that nod to Kafka is like, you know, this is like evilly insane, I hope. And he's folding all the books and literary references to torture yeah. into this little scene. Even the issue of the apparatus seldom being in working order is Kafka-esque. Then we come the old post. You tie people to it and whip them with a 13-thronged scourge. It used to be in the old yard, but the witches complained. And the Castilian made them move it about 100 years ago. The Castilian is the, the one in charge of the Citadel. And then you get that nice moment where Thecla says, who are the witches? Yeah. You know, again, it's sort of this like, what, what? <laughs> These things that Severian's been mentioning as if they're just a normal part of, of life around here. And Thecla has. Yeah, but it's a, it's a question we're all asking exactly. about. Exactly. And of course, Gurlouis says, I'm afraid I don't have time to yeah. go into that now. <laughs> yeah, that one still feels totally like a wolf joke right there. Yeah. <laughs> In the midst of everything else going on. He says Severian can tell her when she's return to her cell, but of course he never does. She's surprised to learn that she's not about to die. She looks at Severian and because Gurlouise is on her other side and can't see, he takes her icy hand. She asks if she can choose her punishment. No. We have no say in the matter, Chatelaine, nor do you. We carry out the sentences that are delivered to us, no more than we are told, and no less and making no changes and embarrassed he clears his throat why why do you think he's embarrassed there like that that was one thing what what embarrasses him he's an odd fit for a torturer he's ne he's never comfortable in this job severian has said that he's totally unfit for the job and yet all the parts of him are are fashioned by himself to be perfect for the role but none of them really go together to make a torture, someone who can actually do this job and not be living in torture himself. And plus what he's done is just sort of come right out and say what we're told is one of the torturer's glories later on is that they obey, that they do what's told. He's just said we obey, but he's embarrassed by it <laughs> as if to say like, yeah, and I probably, I know it's not <laughs> quite. He's basically admitted that he's no different from the clients mm -hmm. there. He has a role to play. Yeah. They have their role to play. Yeah. And they and no one gets to choose in the matter. He always thinks of himself as being better off than everyone else in the world because he can never be sent down to the Ubinet, but he yeah. lives in the Ubinet. Yeah. yeah. He goes on to talk about another device, Alowin's necklace. Uh, Alowin was an alternate name for the Saint Bavo of Ghent. I can't figure out a necklace or strangulation association with him. Alowin, remember, is some person in Severian's world. It's a metaphor for the name of an inventor or something like that. But it is a saint's name, which I think is uh, we do yes. have a, a torture device named after a saint. Mm -hmm. uh, for this one, the victim is strapped to the chair and a pad is placed against the chest. And apparently there's a chain that's attached to the pad and goes around the neck. And each breath that he draws thereafter tightens the chain so that the more he breathes, the less breath he can take. In theory, it can go on forever. 
with very shallow breaths and very small tightening. It's that last detail that makes it horrible. Like it's bad enough yeah. as it is, but that last idea that end, it can just keep going just enough. Yeah. I hate to say it, but the one thing this reminds me of is the Deadpool movie when the way that, that the, I don't know if you saw it or not, but the bad guys are like forcing his latent mutant abilities to come out because when he's under super stress, that's when his powers show up. So what they do is they put him in this, airtight container with just enough air to keep him barely conscious but he's sitting there feeling like he's suffocating for hours on it yeah yeah which just oh yeah that was the one part of that movie that i was like oh, i hate this thecla <laughs> notes a different one with a tangle of wire and a great glass globe over the table this is called the revolutionary he doesn't tell her directly but this is the one that they're going to use on her she was taller than any of us, but with that terrible fear in her face, her height was no longer imposing. Girl Louise tells her to lie on the table. She hesitates. If you do not, our journeyman will have to force you. You would not like that, Chatelaine. Thecla whispers, I thought you were going to show me all of them. Only until we reach this spot, Chatelaine. It's better if the client's mind is occupied. Now lie down, please. I won't be asking again. So it's, notice that it's not what he's, he doesn't treat her roughly or intimidatingly. It's, it's not personal. <laughs> that's the, that's the terror. Mm -hmm. That's the horror of this whole scene. Yeah. So she does it. Severian and Rosha strap her in. The straps are, so old and cracked, Severian wonders if they can hold her. And then he goes, There were cables to be wound from one part of the examination room to another, rheostats and magnetic amplifiers to be adjusted. Antique lights like blood red eyes gleamed in on the control panel, and a droning like the song of some huge insect filled the entire chamber. For a few moments, the ancient engine of the tower lived again. One cable was loose, and sparks as blue as burning brandy played about its bronze fittings. Grillery says it runs on lightning. There's another word for it, but I forget. <laughs> the word, of course, is electricity. Yeah. yeah. The one other thing about that moment is it's another time where I couldn't, I can never help but think of Frankenstein. But because mm. the whole thing totally seems like a mad scientist situation where they're buckled in with old leather straps or she is, you know, old, when it talks about rheostats and amplifiers, like big machines with knobs and everything else and, and you know, lightning and cables and all. And then but the final thing that made me think Frankenstein was lightning when when he calls it lightning, because, of course, that's how you know, mm -hmm. like his machine goes. And then to, of course, have that connected with Baldanders later on. But I, I, I couldn't help but. Uh, see Frankenstein in that moment. And I don't know what to do with that. Like, it, it seemed like there ought to be, like, I totally know why Frankenstein and Baldanders work so well later on. Mm -hmm. In this case, if that is it, unless it's just fun, I, I'm having a hard time figuring out what about this would be connected to that. Because we're not making, I mean, I guess we are kind of making a monster, but it's not you know, life from death or anything like that. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I just, I've been sitting here trying to think about this all day. Like, like, why does that remind <laughs> me of Frankenstein so much? 
and I still well, there's a horror answer. scene for sure. It is, it is that, but but yeah. Severian, push your handle there until the needle's here. A coil that had been as cold as a snake when I touched it a moment before was warm now. Thecla asks what the revolutionary does. I couldn't describe it, Chatelaine. Anyway, I've never done it, you see. Well, I don't know whether that's true, but he knows what it does, mm -hmm. but he can't describe it because apparently that's part of the the way this works is he can tell her about any of the devices of torture, except the one that's going to be used on her. Yeah. And this paragraph is so harsh too, because the torture begins halfway through a paragraph. And I know that sounds like a weird thing, but it's so casual. She's mm -hmm. like, what does it do? And Gerlo is just, he's like, I couldn't describe it anyway, you know, and I've never had it done. You see, it's like, he's conversational. And then he flips the switch. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's yeah. just so, ah, it's like the way that happens. It goes back to that sort of impersonal thing. Like he's not super casual about it, but he's also not engaged. It's just, no, yeah. no, he's, a, he's, it's not his job to comfort her, but it's not his job to torment her any more than he's ordered to. And he's yeah. not inclined to either. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's as gentle and nice as he could be given what he's about to do. As a functionary, yeah, in, in a, just a, a, you know, he's professionally polite, but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's so awful. But, um, and then to have like that sort of casual thing, I don't know. I mean, you're talking about the writing. This is one chapter that I really like to sort of get into the stuff because this little paragraph here is just so cool where it starts off with such casual little, you know, oh, I couldn't really describe it. I've never uh -huh. had it done. That happens. And then the last sentence is the screaming. She screamed. I've heard screaming all my life, but that was the worst, though not the loudest. It seemed to go on and on like the shrieking of a cartwheel. And that. Oh, here. Let me. Let me. Oh, yeah. Let me read that. Yeah. Let me read that because it is good. It's Gerlois turns a knob on the control panel and Thecla was bathed in a white light that stole the color from all it fell upon. She screamed. I have heard screaming all my life. But that was the worst, though not the loudest. It seemed to go on and on like a shrieking of a cartwheel. She was not unconscious when the white light died. Her eyes were open, staring upwards, but she did not appear to see my hand or to feel it when I touched her. Her breathing was shallow and rapid. Yeah. Now that screaming, the one thing that gets me about that screaming is he says it's not the loudest it's not this kind of screaming that's like one immediate terrifying shriek. Instead, it's like screaming that just keeps going. And then to describe it as like a squeaky wheel that goes down the road, like I imagine mm -hmm. like a slow moving cart and the wheel is squeaking. Right. And it just goes and goes and goes. And you can hear it as it's like, <laughs> you know, yard, like, you know, just half a mile away. And you can, and yeah. it's not overwhelming, but it just never stops. And, ah, uh, that's just, it's, look, it's so awful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Severian is going to talk about how he has seen, uh, girl Louise after he's become autark and he doesn't look good. Mm -hmm. You know, think about going through this type of thing every day or every other, apparently they do every, every day, except for St. Catherine's day and the day after St. Catherine's day, he has to do this. Well, they carry her back to her cell, but he says, we got out the travail. 
And actually, that's one thing, too, that uh, Wolf, that's one of the words he has in there that he says, a rough framework to which a load can be tied to facilitate carrying or dragging it. So in other words, what it makes me think is sort of like a hastily made, made like a wheelbarrow, basically, like something like that. Like they've they literally just wheeled her back upstairs. I mean, that's the that's the de- yeah, travail. Like you're exactly right. But the one that Wolf decided to pull out um, that he put in the, the words world wonderful chapter, um, that was the one that made me just think like a hastily made wheelbarrow or stretcher or something like that and then this other this sad little part right here so after severian's shift he went to visit her she was awake but she couldn't stand she speaks so quietly severian has to lean in to understand her she says i ought to hate you she said and he says it's all right but i don't not for your sake if i hate my last friend what would be left note that she assumed she would be released because she had all her friends, all her family that would come to her defense Mm -hmm. that this thing has ultimately happened to her has demonstrated that no one was willing to stick out their neck for her. Mm -hmm. So Severian doesn't say anything in response as she speaks, her hand creeps up toward her eyes. She grabs it and forces it down. Her scalp is bleeding There are, quote, curling dark hairs entangled in her fingers. He tapes clean lint to the wound on her head, but he knows that she'll soon rip it off. She describes what the revolutionary procedure was like. I thought I saw my worst enemy, a kind of demon, and it was me. Since then, I can't control my hands. I can if I think about it, if I know what they're doing, but it's so hard and I'm getting tired. She spits blood. I bite myself, biting the lining of my cheek and my tongue and lips. Once my hand tried to strangle me and I thought, oh, good, I will die now, but I only lost consciousness and they must have lost their strength because I woke. She says, It's like Alwyn's necklace, only worse. My hands are trying to blind me now, to tear my eyelids away. Will I be blind? He says, yes. How long before she dies? He says, a month, perhaps. The thing in you that hates you will weaken as you weaken. The revolutionary brought it to life, but its energy is your energy. And in the end, you will die together. We get a broken conversation. Severian? Yes. I see. It's a thing from Erebus, from Abia, a fit companion for me. Vodalus, her voice fades to a whisper. Now, this statement, the Commonwealth has deliberately had its technology primitivized. There's going to be some exposition later that I think, well, this is the theory really, but it's heavily textually based. The Megatherians, the massive alien powers so large that they live in the ocean because they can't support their weight on land. They only have power on earth due to the influence they have over people. And this power is exhibited by factions and governments. Among the carrots they offer is technology and knowledge. Vodalus has a ray gun, for example. Power over their environment. 
So Father Aniri's faction has deliberately debilitated the technology of the Commonwealth, I think, to reduce the influence of the Megatherians. It's like if you have a cancer of your antibodies, you destroy the antibodies to fight it. I've seen a theory that the sun was damaged as a means to fight them. The enemy nation to the north, the Askians, the uh, Asheans, the Ashians, they're aligned or controlled by Erebus, and their individual soldiers do carry personal energy weapons, but very few of them because they don't have the resources to produce more. And by the way, so these amazing, magical, terrible technologies, that's technology that is associated with the Megatherians. So that's what, what she means by it's a thing from Erebus and Nabia, right? That would make sense because otherwise it, if we're thinking something deliberate, yeah. Otherwise it's sort of like, it's a thing from the devil, you know, and it, mm -hmm. that would be, but then the, the trick is that if Thecla really is on Vodalus's side, then she wouldn't necessarily see Erebus and Abaya as the devil. Um, so instead that's where that, that idea that you're talking about where, where it's more connected to, you know, what I think of as more like a direct sort of plot point. And then she goes directly to say a fit companion for, for me. me. Yeah. Yep. Which perhaps is an admission that she was not just communicating with Thea as a sister, but that she was actually a sympathizer for her yep. cause. Yep. Or maybe to turn it around that, you know, like Severian, she always sympathized with Vodalus's cause, but never actually did anything Could be that to too, help. Yeah. Mm. That, you know, that she was re guilty of rebellion in mm. her heart. Yeah. Perhaps she was a traitor in the, the, just the way that Severian was a traitor to his guild. Perhaps she showed mercy to Thea in some way. So the other thing, though, is that the it that she's talking about, a thing from Erebus from Abaya is, and this is sort of where, I don't know if this is right, but I always assume that the way he describes what the revolutionary does is it makes you turn against yourself. But then just the way he describes it is the thing in you that hates you will mm -hmm. weaken as you weaken as if it's something else that's put in there. I don't know. I mean, I still, that's all speculative, but it's just more good sort of wolf fun where there's some ambiguity to how exactly how things are stated that leave a few different options open. Yeah. Well, so. he's going to, whatever it is, he doesn't have uh, a te the technical knowledge mm -hmm. to, be able to describe exactly how it works. He's speaking in metaphor, yeah. which is real enough. Yep. Yep. But I want to go back, you know, the thing about a fit companion for me, the thing is we know Thecla was never sure why she was arrested, let alone executed because Severian has to ask the autark later. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. Cause I mean, she does. And she does have the, the um bracelet right like and we talked about before how the bracelet mm -hmm. is could right. indicate that you know she was on their side and yeah which could be then this is a moment where she's kind of like oh i realize those guys are the bad guys now <laughs> you know if they're, <laughs> if they're capable of this horrible stuff it could be something like that too yeah it's i i don't know i i don't have a good way to to solve yeah. that line exactly what she means there apart from apart from the general idea that yeah she's she's finally sort of admitting at least a little bit that yeah i kind of was you know i'm guilty of something even if it's just in my you know in my loyalties but i think yeah but i think she's saying that this is technology this is the sort of technology that 
the megatherians would hand out that people don't normally have it's it's alien technology and that would work that would work but she, she kind of fades off after she says voteless and he leans in but he can't hear the rest of what she has to say about voteless he tells her that despite all his conflicted emotions he actually did steal a cook's knife from the kitchen to break her out it had a blade length a little longer than that of an outstretched hand from a pinky to a thumb but he had no opportunity to do it without killing the guards, his family and friends. He had sharpened it well though. Her hands are moving up again and blood is trickling from her mouth where she's biting her cheek or tongue or lip. She asks him for the knife and he pulls it out from his cloak. The last words he speaks to her is, I know how to treat an edge and I sharpened it carefully. He puts the knife in her right hand and leaves the cell and shuts the door. He waits outside. He knows he has time to change his mind. He considers it a thousand times to go in and take back the knife and no one would know that he had considered betraying the honor of the guild. He could still be a torturer. The only life he knows, perhaps all the life he would ever know. That is what he was giving up by standing outside that cell and waiting. There was no sound that he could hear, but eventually a red stream flowed from under the door. Then he goes immediately to tell Gerloise what he's done. Notice he doesn't tell Palamon, likely the more sympathetic person to confess to. I think this demonstrates true shame he feels over the act. He can't bear to see Palamon's face when he tells him. He prefers to tell it to a face that will mirror the self-contempt he feels inside. Hmm. That makes sense, yeah. I like that the last thing he says is the, you know, I know how to treat an edge and I sharpened it carefully, which we're going to get a lot of talk later in these books about Severian sharpening an edge and treating a blade well and <laughs> yeah. does a lot of things with that and, you know, that that this is the line of division. This is certainly a line of division right here between in his life. And yeah. And it's also for her at that moment, it's the most welcome thing he can say. Mm -hmm. And that's the end. And that is such a horrifying end, yeah. but it is so well-written. I love this chapter for what it is. So one general thing that comes up and this, this is something that's always bothered me and I don't remember if they ever mention it, but when, after Severian goes through the ritual and, you know, takes the Alzabo and gets Thecla, does he, I think if I, I remember correctly, I should have gone looking for it before we recorded, but um, a passage where he remembers what it was like to go through the revolutionary. But the other thing though, is that I always wondered, okay, well, if that's there, why did that not transfer into Severian as well? Like if whatever that thing is that's in there why did that not become part of him too at that point? well we'd have to know and what was going we would have to know more about the device yeah i guess so i guess so but that's just one little thing about the the connection that, that just always kind of nagged at me a little bit um is if he has every other memory so much well why not these and why aren't they so lasting as this was but who knows i mean we come up with all kinds of reasons like oh well actually the revolutionary worked on brain chemistry and not memory I, yeah i don't well, you know, Wolf is not a hard science fiction writer. Right. Never written anything that's that's a, and so 
anytime you start trying to break down, you know, gosh, how did the inhumi absorb people's souls? How did, how did you do that? You know, Wolf doesn't care about yeah. that. But yeah, so one thing I think we got to figure out then here is, um, or well, the first thing I'd say is that the fact that he ends with that confession like it's it's real easy to see this as oh Severian did a wonderful thing out of love, but it takes him a long time to really kind of make peace with this decision. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he, he, no, he maybe he never does he when he's not, writing yeah. this. Obviously, he says, you know, he's obviously not made peace with it at the time. I thought it mattered. Yeah, I mean, that says he's still. It, you know, it still irks him. I don't know. Maybe maybe Thecla accuses him over it. Who knows? She's she is the more. Um, more ethical, more r- romantic person. So maybe that's what it comes from. Yeah. And thinking too, that, you know, Severian is writing this and, and assuming that Severian named the chapters as well, you know, he's labeled himself a traitor right here to his right. guild. So that would suggest that even at this point, he's still having, if not regret, at least, yeah, like you mentioned shame. I mean, there's still something that he feels like he turned against his family, even if in the long run he feels like he made the right decision because he's going to, as he says, get rid of the, you know, totally reform the right. tortures. But at the same time, he still feels that, that shame. And I like that, you know, that's one thing that makes all of the sort of moral questions that Severian goes through much more interesting in this book, because there's never just, you know, Oh, I made the right decision and therefore I'm fine with every consequence that comes out of it. I mean, he's mm-hmm. Severian really, you know, suffers <laughs> in, a, in a way that I think people really would, you know, if you had to turn against right. things, it's not an easy yeah. answer. It seems so easy and obvious to us that, you know, this is the least you could have done, but we're also, like you said, asking him to turn against everything he knows. Well, he lives in a world where this sort of punishment is, is accepted as the established way to do things. Severian by turning against it is the progressives. He's the, the, mm-hmm. he's the revolutionary. Yeah. He's, he's the one turning against the system. He's, mm. he yeah. is the novelty yeah. by seeing something wrong with it. I like that connection that he is the revolutionary in the moment. That's <laughs> yeah, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, but he's, he's the odd man out mm-hmm. in his society. Yeah. Well, that, and that's the end. And, uh, feels like it was quick to go through, but, yeah, it's I think this is this is definitely one where I think it's much clearer of, you know, an emotional scene that, that mm-hmm. in some ways it's way more traditional than, you know, a lot of wolf things where there's, you know, five things going on and three of them don't make sense. You know, so I mean, that, <laughs> this is not that kind of chapter. Right. I mean, we get that one line there about Erebus and Abaya, but otherwise Wolf has to be pretty clear about what's going on in this moment in order for anything else that Severian does from here on out to make sense. So it, right. it has to be. And what's fun too is, is he's, he's a good writer. So it's not, it's not dull. It's like, okay, if I'm not giving you fun, weird mysteries, every corner, I can do other things too. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, it's nice to see, you know, I have seen criticism will sometimes that, you know, if he's not being mysterious, then there's nothing there. Oh yeah. 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 This he, chapter refused. He doesn't for, for the almost, entirely he doesn't withdraw at all it, everything is on the table and it is it's, it's terrible <laughs> so but you can't have a whole novel where the emotion is kept to this height so yeah but you can contact us on the rereading wolf podcast facebook group that's the place where most people 
seem to do so and have conversations. Or you don't want to talk in front of everybody else, you can contact us by email at rereadingwolf at gmail.com. You can also keep up with us on Twitter at rereadingwolf or on Instagram, Rereading Wolf Podcast. And Instagram is fun because you can see the new things that James has been buying lately. <laughs> that's that's true. Connected to Wolf or having or being gifted to him. Yes, yeah. My family is wonderful. Lately I've been covering the publications where Wolf first sold his first stories. So that's pretty cool. And also establishing my own wish lists. <laughs> of course, we also have a Rereading Wolf Podcast subreddit if you want to connect over there. And we're really looking forward to hearing from you. So thank you for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Love hurts, love scars, love wounds, and marks any heart. I got to admit, though, I'm kind of ready to get Severian out of the tower. Well, it takes great discipline. I feel like Gerlouise. <laughs> it's one chapter at a time every two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> we do no more. We do no less.